You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Matthew Cobb and his cat. <laughs> and my cat. Right. So yeah, and He's a professor of biology and zoology at the University of Manchester, also the author of a number of books. I've got a couple of them here. Most recently, a book called As Gods, A Moral History of the Genetic Age. Just before that, you came up with this well, another book that's very historical. It's called The Idea of the Brain, The Past and Future of Neuroscience. Also got this nice little book on smell, which is kind of your specialty. Smell, a very short introduction. Other books in the topic, Life's Greatest Secret, The Egg and Sperm Race, and then a couple books about history, right? I mean, I guess these are all history too, but the, history. the Resistance, 11 Days in August, which are really all about World War II. Welcome, Matthew. Great to be here with my cats. I hope they don't walk in front of us too Right, much. right. Well, look, so this book, I mean, they're all historical. This one is a moral history. Not my title. <laughs> well, okay. But it, but it does touch on this because it really is about the rise of genetic engineering, but it's also about the social reception of it right? And how we think about it. And I think, you know, a big part of the story is that there are kind of the hope people and the fear people, right? And you kind of need the hope people and the fear people in order to make sure that these new technologies stay on track. And what I find interesting is that a big part of the story is how genetic engineering has replaced kind of nuclear power as sort of a touchstone of our ambiguity about scientific progress and how we feel about it. And, you know, you probably published this just in time because my guess is that artificial intelligence is going to completely supplant <laughs> genetic engineering and nobody will be thinking about genetic engineering, mm. you know, pretty soon because people are obsessed with that. But, you know, when we say genetic engineering, this term engineering, and I, I teach engineering, is always thought of as distinct from science in the sense that science is really all about observing the world and engineering is about kind of interfering with the world. And I think there was this quote that you had from Richard Feynman on his blackboard, I guess, when he died, where he said, what I cannot create, I, I cannot understand. And, and this seems to be like the engineer's mantra, right? You know, where we take things like molecular biology and move it into, you know, some kind of practical science. Like, how do we use this to kind of improve or change the world? Yeah, that. I mean, that's the phrase that the more engineering end and the more kind of tech bro end of genetic engineering apply. I'm not sure it's actually true in that most of what we do with genetic engineering was actually imagined and conceived and understood well, well before it became a reality. In fact, in the 1950s, with the development of once DNA, the structure of DNA was discovered and people like Crick worked out how it might function in producing proteins, then people pretty soon started imagining, so it wasn't a reality, well, maybe we could move bits of DNA between organisms and cure diseases or get bacteria or other microbes to do amazing things. And that's actually what happened in the mid-1970s when following the discovery in particular by Paul Berg, who went on to win the Nobel Prize, that it was possible to take DNA from a virus and put it in a bacterium or vice versa. And ultimately, in the mid-1970s, to persuade 
bacteria to produce the precursor of insulin. This was the big breakthrough, which led to the tech explosion in the mid-1970s and later, the patenting of life forms, which was allowed in the US from 1980 onwards. There's a huge boom. And you know now anybody who uses insulin uses insulin that is made in a microbe, not insulin as it used to be that was gouged out of a pancreas of some cow or, or pig that died in a slaughterhouse. And that insulin is much safer, much better than the insulin used to get from an animal. And, and when they actually did the experiment, and it worked to everybody's amazement, because they didn't actually take the DNA sequence of human insulin because they didn't know what it was. They took the amino acid sequence, which was known, so the structure of the molecule, and then imagined what the DNA sequence could be because the genetic code is what's called redundant. So there are many amino acids that are encoded by more than one three letters of DNA called a codon. And so they just, they came up with an idea. They put this DNA into a microbe and they said, it's amazing. It turns out that Watson and Crick were right. So the idea, you know, even before you could make it, you could turn it, take it apart and make it again in Feynman's terms, and then fully understand it, it had been understood almost on a theoretical level and predicted back in the 1950s and 1960s. Well, before we dig into some of the scientific details, because, you know, I'm, although I, I feel comfortable with a lot of aspects of evolutionary biology, some of the details of genetics are still a little hard to grasp uh, for me. But I want to step back to the big picture, which is, you know, why is it that so many people feel so much unease around things like genetic engineering, right? Why is it that we think of this as playing God? I mean, has this always been true with new advances in science? I mean, you don't think that, oh, when they invented, you know, the wheel or when they figured out how to build the arch, you know, do you think people were like, oh my gosh, we're, no, we're playing God here, building arches. And I mean, it, it seems like other aspects of engineering. Have you read any 19th century novels? Have you read any 19th century novels? They're full of anxiety about, for example, the railway system. Uh -huh, yeah. So railways were seen as, you know, because they were so transformative as being utterly radical. I mean, they shake up society. They enable me people to move about. They move extraordinarily fast. Think of electricity. Although it's not actually named, that's what underlies the creation of Frankenstein's monster in mm -hmm. Frankenstein right. by Mary Shelley. So new technology generally does disturb us if it's very widespread. I mean, you know, look at all the fuss about screen time and, you know, are our dopamine systems being hacked by uh, our phones? Answer, no, they're not. But that's what it feels like, mm -hmm. yeah, because you can get addicted to this endless uh, scrolling. So technology always has this very kind of dangerous aspect when it's introduced and then gradually it becomes slightly less alarming. And that's kind of happened with nuclear power. I mean, with the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it kind of suddenly re-emerged with the threat of nuclear war. But in general, people are much more relaxed about it than they were, say, in the 60s. And I think the same thing has largely happened to aspects of genetic engineering, many of them. And one of the things that kind of demonstrates this is if I deal with this in the last chapter of the book, I suddenly thought, well, what has culture been saying about it? Because culture is generally a good indicator mm -hmm. of what society thinks about it, what we think is exciting, frightening, whatever. And I couldn't think of any major cultural creation since the 90s, in fact, since Jurassic Park, 
about the fears and the issues associated with genetic engineering. And although the Jurassic Park franchise has continued, it's not actually about the moral dilemmas, which are at the heart of the book and then of the film. That is, you know, your scientists were so busy about thinking whether they could, they didn't think about whether they should, as it's put in the film. But that seems to be accepted now. I mean, the films are just about when are the dinosaurs going to go crazy? We just want to go and see angry dinosaurs. We're not interested in that moral issue. And it seems to me that has signifies or suggests that many people are kind of accepting of it. I mean, in the US, if you eat your maize, then your corn rather, and we call it maize, you call it corn, then you're going to be eating GM corn because that's all you produce over there. And people may not like that. I mean, there's nothing to worry about. I don't think there's any evidence at all that there's any health problems. And so these things have kind of been accepted in Europe and in the UK for the moment. That doesn't enter the human food chain, but it is eaten by animals. And we then eat the animals if you eat animals. So these things have kind of calmed down enormously. And that's partly why I wanted to write the book, because there are three things that do worry me very much, at least one of which is maybe two of which people are aware of, and the third one they're not. And I wanted to, one, alert people, but also, I recognise that my fears are very similar to those that occurred in the mid-1970s, for example, when genetic yeah. engineering was first developed. And it turns out that those fears were, well, whether they were unnecessary or not is not clear, but certainly they have not caused the catastrophe that some people feared. So I wanted to kind of test my own anxieties against the past and try and work out whether I'm making a fuss about nothing or whether I'm right to be alarmed. Yeah. What I really liked about that was that, you know, when you start off the book, you say that you're worried about these three things, right? Heritable gene editing, right? You know, gene drives. Uh, I talked to Beth Shapiro about gene drives in an earlier episode and gain of function. Now, of course, I mean, gain of function is something which has been in the news quite a bit. And it seems like the stakes are around the lab leak hypothesis for COVID. You know, for me, this just seems like a simple scientific question like, hey, you know, is it lab leak or not? Right. But, you know, I think for a lot of people, they're worried about the outcome of that whole story because they're afraid about the consequences either one way or the other for this type of research. And some people want to protect the research and some people want to kind of, you know, prevent the research. And we'll dig into all three of those. But what I liked about the fact in the book is that you say, hey, I'm really worried about this. And then you start off the story by talking about these folks from the 60s, you know, these folks who were, you know, protesting and they kind of come across as Luddites. I mean, I don't think this was your intent, but they kind of come across as Luddites in the book. And so you're kind of, it seems like you're philosophically asking yourself, like, am I a Luddite for, for worrying about this stuff? Right. And, and I don't think you answer one way or the other. I, I don't think I am, but well, I don't think I'm a Luddite. I think I'm right to be very wary. And I think I certainly am a Luddite about a human heritable genome editing. I'm uh, very strongly opposed to it on moral and practical grounds. And I think it's a very bad idea. In terms of the other two things, then the gain of function studies, I mean, I do want to make very clear there is no evidence, and I don't know any of any scientist who argues that the COVID-19 was a product of gain-of-function studies. There is no evidence of that. David Baltimore made some rather foolish statements at the beginning of the pandemic, but there is no evidence of that. People who argue that it came from a leak from the Wuhan Virology Lab, their view is that these were microbes that were being studied in Wuhan and got out because stuff happens. You know, I mean, that's 
things can get out of labs, and they have done in the past. I mean, I'm not a virologist, I'm not an epidemiologist, but my reading of the literature is that it seems almost certain that it came from an animal and probably from these one of these most likely source seems to be a raccoon dog that were being sold in exactly the place where in the wet markets, if you remember that far back in Wuhan, where it was initially suggested it, it began. But this is a material question. It'll be worked out. But there is no evidence that gain-of-function studies led to that. On the other hand, gain-of-function studies are so alarming that in 2011, the researchers who were carrying it out decided they had to stop mm. until they could make it safe. And one of the leading researchers said, I've done something really stupid, he said. And that is that he'd enabled bird flu, which is far more dangerous than COVID. He'd enabled bird flu to be transmitted through the air like COVID from one mammal to another. Now, he was doing this for very good reasons. He was trying to see, is it possible? Should we be worried about this? Can it happen? And sadly, the answer he's found out was, yes, it can. But then you've got this thing in the lab that if it got out would cause something that would be far, far greater than what we've just been living through. It would be an mm -hmm. absolute catastrophe. My view is that I don't think we need to know whether it's possible. I think we can be prepared for the worst, and that doesn't involve creating such organisms in the lab. It's not worth the risk. It's not worth the, any potential gain we might get. But as I say, I'm not a virologist, and this is an area of dispute. But I have the right to have my opinion as much as they do. So what's interesting about this whole history is that there's this event that took place, the uh, Asilomar event. And I had found out, I didn't know about this until I was talking to Stuart Russell about the need for maybe an, an Asilomar moment in the kind of artificial intelligence community. But, yeah. you know... Everybody always wants an Asilomar. Yeah, everybody wants an Asilomar. But the thing about the Asilomar, the way you articulate it, the way you describe it, is that they never really addressed any of the ethical questions, like any of the big questions, like, should we be pursuing this avenue of research? It was just about like, hey, how do we kind of make sure that it's, quote, safe? Right. And, that, you know, there's nothing that leaks out of the lab, like that everything's kind of contained in the experimental world. But there was no real discussion of should we even be pursuing this line of inquiry or, you know, should we be thinking about what we're going to do with it once we've developed it? I mean, that it doesn't really answer the key question. Like you say, OK, let's make sure that Lawrence Berkeley Lab doesn't have, you know, nuclear leakage. But no real question about like, okay, once we develop these bombs, like, you know, what are we going to do with them? Is that really something that scientists should be talking about? Or is that something that should be left to the ethicists and philosophers? Well, I think everybody's got to talk about it. And I think the time to talk about it is when you are developing, in fact, before you're developing. We can see this in AI at the moment. You know, the fact that these AIs, which are remarkably stupid, but are also, you know, systematically racist. You should call them artificial stupidity. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, if you leave them on their own, then they're going to cause all sorts of panic and chaos and could, because they're simply reflecting what they've been trained on and the world is not a terribly nice place. So they just repeat and amplify that. You know, my worry isn't that we'll see the Pope wearing a puffer jacket and think, hey, that's amazing. The Pope wearing, which I did, I'm afraid I was completely duped. <laughs> but that, in fact, it can be used. One, it can be used to spread misinformation. And goodness me, there's enough of that going around with humans create it. And then even more alarmingly, if these things are put into devices such as drones and so on. And that does scare the willies out of me. And I think the parallels between genetic engineering and where we are now, not where we were in the 70s, and AI are really very appropriate. And 
Never mind about the rights and wrongs of that letter that was just published calling for a pause in AI development. But I think it's not so much having a meeting, it's having regulation, because that was the point of Asilomar. That's what it did. Now, what's very striking is that if you talk to scientists or you read the you know, the, the opening chapters of a textbook about genetic engineering, it will talk about Asilomar. And scientists are really proud about it because it was self-regulation. They didn't get the state involved. It was just them meeting and saying, okay, these are the criteria we can use to enable this to be done safely. And of course, that fitted in very much with a certain American model where you're very happy to have low regulation. And what's striking is that there was no, as you say, there was no discussion. Not only was there no discussion, it was ruled out of order. Mm. So David Baltimore was one of the organisers at the beginning, so as you can gather, he's still around, he's still doing his stuff. He said very explicitly, we are not going to discuss a number of things. We're not going to discuss either the possibility of carrying out gene therapy, we're not going to discuss commercial applications, and we're not going to discuss the potential use of genetic engineering as bioweapons. Now, what's amazing is that all three things were actually on the cusp, and two of them, you know, commercial applications and terrifying bioweapons were actually being developed. And the vast majority of people at Asilomar had no idea. There was just a handful of people who didn't actually overlap. So the Americans, a handful of the Americans knew that patents had been taken out by Boyer and Cohen, by Stanford and by the University of California to patent their way of gene cloning, as it was called. And that was known, Paul Berg, who's the main organiser, he discovered about this a week or two weeks before the meeting, was absolutely livid, A, because he disagreed with the principle, mm -hmm. but also he thought, well, now everybody's going to think the only reason we're doing this is to make money, to enable, you know, to have a safe procedure so we can all become filthy rich. So they kept the lid on that for some time and nobody, it didn't leak out. The other thing, which nobody knew, I don't think, until I did an amazing piece of research, which involved looking up names in an index, is that the Soviet delegation yeah. to the cinema, who were these old guys who in the accounts of the meeting, you know, the kind of young bucks of American genetics were la literally laughing at them, saying, these old guys know nothing. You know, they don't get it. They're just the heads of the Academy of Science. You know, they, it's not they don't, they're pretending, they just don't get it. We now know that two years earlier, so as soon as genetic engineering was kind of, you know, Paul Berg had said, yeah, we can do this. They went to Brezhnev and they said, give us a load of rubles and we will build you a better weapon. We will build you a bioweapon using genetic engineering. And that is exactly what had begun in the Soviet Union. And that was completely unknown to anybody. These guys were just these old foolish guys, didn't know anything. Oh, yes, they did. And they actually, it took some time, but the Soviet Union did indeed achieve that, created some terrifying things. And God knows where they are now, because with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the whole system was kind of privatized and then disappeared. And who knows where they are now. Right. And you talk about that anthrax leak, I think, that happened in the Soviet Union around that time. Yeah, the Soviet Union, there was an anthrax leak that took place in the 80s, and the Soviet Union said, oh, well, people were eating bad tin meat. And then Matt Meiselson, the veteran molecular geneticist, went to the Soviet Union, was able to demonstrate that the town that was affected is just downwind of a major lab that was part of this huge network of kind of 50,000 researchers that spread all over the Soviet Union. But, I mean, who knows what's been made and what's been built since. And people regularly get very worried about this, and in particular with the development of new systems like CRISPR, where it's even easier. All the time people say, well, you know, a high school student could do this. Well, a high school student can understand it, but carrying out the technique is difficult. 
And then the really difficult thing, I'm glad to say, is weaponizing and, you know, enabling it to diffuse in the air. And even better, how to do that isn't actually shared by scientists. Mm. Those people who know working in government labs and don't release that. So I, I don't think we need to worry about terrorists producing bioweapons. It's states we've got to worry about. All of our states, your state, my state, the Russians, Chinese. Mm. I don't know who's got them, but the Israelis, uh, it's a very worrying business. Well, there's a moment in the book, I think part of the story is about these two things happening simultaneously where Paul Berg wins the Nobel Prize, but then also the founding of Genentech. Now, the founding of Genentech is a story that, that I know because I'm here at you know Berkeley and Stanford, and this is kind of where all of this took place. And it sort of is not just a story of genetic engineering, but it's also a key part of the history of intellectual property in the U.S. And also, it's really the beginning of the monetization of technology transfer from the, the universities, right? I mean, because of the dole by legislation. And, you know, the story about how Boyer was kind of dragged into this, I mean, it's phenomenal that you have this kind of unemployed venture capitalist who just kind of goes through the Rolodex of the Asilomar people and finds this guy and the rest is history. Yeah. I mean, so this was the big, one of the biggest surprises to me. So, you know, I'll be absolutely frank with you. Entrepreneurship and all that stuff doesn't really interest me, right? I'm an old school socialist and I think invention should be taken and exploited by the state and all the rest of it. But reading and writing about the Genentech business was so exciting. It was amazing. It really was. I mean, it's been well studied, so I didn't discover anything new, but it was a very, very exciting moment in history. I mean, of course, we focus on Genentech and they all became, well, some of them became filthy richer, Boyer did, but there were loads of startups. And as is the way, so many of them didn't become filthy rich and it didn't, it wasn't great for everybody. But for Genentech, it was quite the, the I mean, it was a brilliant insight and the idea that they were going to go for insulin, which was Bob Swanson, the unemployed venture <laughs> capitalist who'd been sacked a few weeks earlier, and he got obsessed by it. And that was a brilliant insight and so sharp. And then her Boyer, who's a lovely man, I mean, I interviewed him, I made a radio program about this during lockdown on the BBC, which is available on there, called Genetic Dreams, Genetic Nightmares. Folks, check it out. And I interviewed all these people. Everybody was alive. It's absolutely fantastic. Talked to Paul Boyer, Paul Berg, who died earlier this year. Talked to Boyer. And Boyer was such a, an ebullient, delightful man. And yeah, he ended up, you know, going into this world that, I mean, he was a, you know, an old school academic. He never thought he was going to make a fortune, but it worked. And I mean, you're absolutely right to say this is all part of the Californian myth, because as I was delighted to notice in reading Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, that Apple and Genentech were both incorporated the same week, mm -hmm. just down the road from each other in Silicon Valley. And I thought, well, that that's really telling us something. And indeed, you know, Apple eventually surpassed Genentech's OPA but when Genentech went public, the same day as Berg won the Nobel Prize, that was the biggest offer that had ever, you know, largest amount of money that had ever been made on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, uh, at the same time, you get this company, Monsanto, that is investing a lot in patented genetic crops. And, you know, although I think everybody accepts the idea of genetically modified medicine, right? I mean, insulin is everywhere. 
Yeah, as you alluded to earlier, there's still quite a bit of anxiety around genetically modified food, so much so that it's banned in large parts of the world. Countries in Africa that are experiencing famine will turn away, right, genetically modified food aid. So I guess culturally, like why, I mean, if I can see if there is a concern about things that you put in your body versus things you don't put in your body, but you know, you put insulin in your body, you put vaccines in your body, right? Why is there this still this? Well, um, not everybody, right? You know. Yeah, that's true. Okay. So there is an issue. I mean, I think we probably need Sigmund Freud here. We've got to delve very deeply into our collective psyche, or maybe Carl Jung. You know, it's a collective thing that there's something different about food. And clearly food is not simply stuff you put in your mouth. It's mm. actually cultural, right? It's part of you. It's part of your way of looking at the world. And that's one of the explanations why China, for example, has been very reticent. Well, there's been a huge argument, which was one of the big revelations to me in working on this, that there's been this massive row in China over whether they should allow GM crops, and in particular, GM rice, to the extent that they have allowed Greenpeace a remarkable degree of freedom within China to mobilise and campaign against GM crops. And you know, some parts of the Chinese army and bureaucracy think that it's an imperialist plot and it's going to, you know, cause infertility and all the kind of nonsense you get. And other parts are very keen to develop it because China's got a very strong appetite for genetic engineering, including, I might say, in the past anyway, in humans with kind of eugenicist overtones in their views. But I think to go back again, this is something else that surprised me and was very striking. So Monsanto well, it doesn't exist anymore. It's been taken over by a buyer and the name's disappeared. But Monsanto got a lot of bad press. And to be frank, it deserved some of it because it was very bullying and all the rest of it. But the starting point of Monsanto was absolutely amazing. What, their interest in genetic engineering, the point they said was to their CEO at the time said, we've got to get out of chemicals because it produced, you know, AstroTurf, Agent Orange, DDT. I mean, what could be more awful? This was a company that, you know, was based on kind of destroying the environment. Mm. And in the late 60s, they said, we've got to get out of chemicals. We can't go on doing this. It's not sustainable. So this is a remarkably modern, you know, it sounds very current, the view of what we should be doing. The brilliant idea they had was to put an insecticide producing gene, a naturally occurring insecticide, which is produced quite by chance by bacteria. I mean, bacteria don't care about insecticides. They produce this substance which will stop caterpillars growing. And the organic farming movement allows you to put this bacterium on your plants, and they're still classed as organic because it's, you're not fiddling around with anything. So they took the gene from this bacterium, put it into a plant, and that was a whole really complicated and again very exciting area of science which i mean i know about this i've translated books about this part of history and all the rest of it and i was amazed to discover that nobody's actually no no historian has studied the history of the genetic manipulation of plants which on a planetary scale is the most significant thing we've done right because it's been the largest take up of any agricultural technology it's been incredibly significant and as Monsanto were very keen to point out, quite rightly, it led to a reduction of about a quarter of a billion tons, I think, of insecticide that has not been sprayed around the planet. And that can only be a good thing. Yeah. But this is a striking thing that according to the US Department of Agriculture, there has been no increase in productivity. So this stuff is amazing, very clever, but it hasn't actually 
led to an increase in productivity. And we know the, the problems with Africa are partly ideological, but, you know, Africa's a continent. It's not a country. It's not even a region. It's a continent. So there's lots of different places with different views. And the key example I use to explain the problem is Burkina Faso. So Burkina Faso produces some of the world's best cotton, very, very high quality cotton. At the beginning of this century, the government got very keen on what's called BT cotton. So that produces this natural insecticide. So the cotton plant will produce a natural insecticide, and that means that the caterpillars won't be able to chew it up and all the rest of it. So they said to all the producers, right, you're going to grow this cotton that we've bought from, I've forgotten who, some company in the US. But the problem was the quality of the cotton that they produced, the plant that had been manipulated was a plant that could be manipulated in the lab. You put it into the fields in Burkina Faso and it doesn't produce the same quality of cotton. So the farmers found that they couldn't sell their product because their USP was high quality cotton. This stuff was okay, but it was a bit rubbish. People could buy that anywhere. So the bottom literally dropped out of their market. So they've now decided, without you know, government's accepted this, well, we'd rather take our chance with the cotton borer and the various insects that will eat it and we'll have to spray. So the problem is this looks like a fantastic techno fix. Yeah, let's do this. Put this thing in there. It'll change everything. But it's missing out that agriculture is not one thing. It's got lots and lots of local systems that depend on local ways of farming, sizes of farm, ecologies. And also it depends on the organisms that you're manipulating. So one of the things which was inevitable has happened is that you now get resistant strains of insect. Because as the biologist Leslie Orgel put it, evolution is smarter than you are. Yeah. And so if you put a massive selection pressure on insects that are going to kill you, then somebody is going to get through just by random mutation. And then they're home free because, you know, they've got no competition. They can eat all your plants. And that's what's happened for both the, for the two key forms of GM plant we've created, which are either BT, so this insecticide producing plant. And of course, it doesn't harm us because we're not caterpillars or these what are called Roundup Ready. That's the other thing. People often talk about diseases. Well, yeah, you know, we could stop plant diseases. It's fascinating. They have not developed such things with a handful of exceptions. There's one banana that hasn't really worked and there's a papaya that they've been able to re make resistant to a virus. But there are lots and lots of mildews and stuff. I've got terrible mildew on my honeysuckle every year. But there aren't GM crops that can resist these diseases. So it's this very niche stuff that we've created that does one thing, which may work in the Midwest, which is where largely it was created for, right? These huge farms where you've got very little ecology left because we've killed it all and eradicated it. That's okay. But if you're a smallholder in Burkina Faso or South Africa or Uganda, it's no good. You know, my favorite part of the Monsanto story was where they found the genes for the Roundup resistant crops in the effluent <laughs> deposit well, exactly outside, it, yeah. outside of the Roundup factory. I was like, well, that's, it reminded me, I did an episode on phages and the, you know, the phage that turned out to be a life-saving phage was found in a sewage treatment plant outside the city of Baltimore, <laughs> right? Which is like yeah. you know, where they find this stuff. But I mean, look, genetic engineering is something we've been doing since the earliest hunter-gatherers, you know, found the einkorn crops, you know. No, that's not engineering. That's selection. Either deliberate or, I mean, either 
kind of unwitting or then deliberate. And that's very different from genetic engineering. That's why I, there's a huge, you can imagine academics will love this. I mean, there are whole books written about whether there was any break, there was any qualitative mm -hmm. leap in 1975. It's all the same. We've been doing it for millennia. I mean, we've been doing it since, you know, humans first trod the earth because we've been putting a selection pressure on animals and plants by eating them, right? And they don't like that. And so there's, I mean, that's the kind of arms race that goes on in any, any predator-prey relationship. But there's a difference between what we're doing now, which is moving DNA from one species to another, often without any great idea of what's going to happen, but it's much more precise and it's directed. And for that reason, that's why the book starts in the 1970s, not in, you know, the plains of Africa, two million years ago, wherever, where, I mean, you could make a case, but I think there is a difference between what we've been able to do for the last 50 years. Well, you know, is there a difference? Is there a categorical difference between somatic cell manipulation and sort of, you know, just creating these sterile crops or sterile creatures? I mean, is that categorically different? I think so, yeah. A difference between creating a GM plant and a mule, say, okay? So people realize that you could cross a horse and a donkey. I can't remember which way around it is. And you'll get a mule. And mules are great. You know, they're very strong, right? They've got the best of both worlds. Got the intelligence of a horse, but they're not quite so skittish and they're very strong and they're bigger than a mule. And that's clearly doing something. But, I mean, it one, it doesn't go anywhere, yeah? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's it. They're sterile. So making of hybrids which has been incredibly significant. I mean, a lot of the plant revolution of the 20th century is based on two things. One, industrial fertilizer, and two, the development of hybrid crops, which are infertile because they've been crossed between two strains that are often from different species or whatever. So there's clearly a series of quantitative steps towards genetic engineering, but I think there's a qualitative difference when you know pretty much what you're going to do, what you're putting in. This gene does this, we're going to put it in to do that. And that's an element of precision and intentionality, which I think does make it different. Are those two different types of genetic engineering? So for instance, you know, if we have salmon in a ring fenced area and we manipulate their genes so that they have, you know, more meat or whatever, and they, you know, they leak out into the general population of salmon. If they can't mate with them and if they can't create these hybrid offspring that have some of these new genetic features, it's presumably less concerning. I don't know about that. I mean, I mean you know, you let something out in an environment, does things, it eats uh -huh. things that other animals can't eat or whatever. I'd just say in passing that the genetically modified salmon in the US, there's been a huge argument about it. I mean, they are held in plants in, in big vats that are inland. Mm -hmm. So they're miles away from any river. So they couldn't get, if they get out, they're going to die, which is the kind of clever biocontainment that scientists like. It's fail-safe, right? If it goes wrong, we're okay. And that's the best way of trying to plan it because we can't be certain. I mean, you know, ecology is just amazingly complicated and you can think of the very well-meaning things we've done in the past of introducing species the cane toad is the great example where they imported the cane toad into Australia to eat the beetles that were eating the sugarcane and they didn't care about the sugarcane. Okay. Instead, they turned out to be venomous and the local marsupials tried to eat them and then they died and these things spread all over Australia. It's been a complete disaster. So maybe we could talk about this guy huh, in China and kind of what he did and what makes that different from, say, the sickle cell therapies and the other, you know, SCID therapies that, you know, we think are potentially groundbreaking and promising, right? So is it really the nature of what this guy did or is it the manner in which he did it 
that makes it so troublesome and so worrying? Well, I think it's a bit of both, but I'll just explain briefly what happened. So in 2018, he announced and it was released, it was scooped by journalists very few days before he announced it. He announced that he had carried out germline manipulation. That is, he had changed the genes of an embryo when it was, so when two, and it now turns out three, baby girls were single cells. So the idea of this is that if you can manipulate the embryo, then every cell in the body will be changed. Including the germline. And that would include the cells that are going to go on to produce either the eggs or the sperm, and so would therefore be transmitted to the next generation. Okay, so this is germline or heritable genome editing. And that's where the ethical arguments, I think, are at their sharpest. The other kind of editing, which is really a, a form of gene therapy, which gene therapy was developed, I mean, there were a number of attempts, but really became possible in the 1990s and ended in various disasters for technical reasons, including one man called Jesse Gelsinger, who sadly died. He was a volunteer in, a, in an experiment. Those therapies only affect the particular cell type that you're interested in. So sickle cell is the one that everybody's excited about, and they're excited about that for two reasons. One, it affects so many people. And secondly, it is only a problem in your red blood cells where a single letter of DNA is altered and produces this form of hemoglobin, which is the protein that carries oxygen, which is different from the normal version, a single letter of DNA changing a single amino acid, alters the conformation, which means that the shape of the red blood cells is no longer kind of like a dumbbell, which is what most of us have, and is instead like a sickle, hence sickle cell anemia. And that means or sickle cell disease, as we now call it. You are anemic, you're in tremendous pain. And I mean, it's really awful, debilitating disease. So the dream, which has yet to be carried out in humans, but will be very soon, is you could, and I'm going to caricature what happens, you get the stem cells from your bone marrow, which are going to produce lots and lots of red blood cells. You remove them, you put them in a test tube, you put CRISPR and these other gene editing things in there, and you alter one letter of DNA. Those cells then all grow, repeat, and you've got loads and loads of them. You re-inject them and bingo, you're cured. Okay. Now, there are a number of protocols to do this that are now being going through the American regulatory system. And soon the first, they're not clinical trials, these are experiments. Some very brave people are going to have this happen. One woman called Victoria Gray, who you may have seen on TV, she has had her sickle cell disease effectively cured, but not through this version. What they did instead was they used CRISPR again, the same idea, they got the cells out. But instead of changing the sickle cell gene, they kind of, there's another version of hemoglobin, which we have when we're embryos. And that normally we stop producing that as we, in early childhood. And instead they kind of crank that up. Okay, so they've turned that gene up to make it work again. And she's cured. She says, I'm without pain for the first time in my life. So if these technologies can be made available cheaply and freely, and if they are safe, then somatic gene therapy, I think most people have no problem with it. The issue is one, safety, absolutely first and foremost, and that's going to be hard to work out. And then equitable access. And as David Liu, who's a chemist at Harvard, very smart guy who is developing even more precise methods of doing gene editing, as he put it, well, we live in a world where there is not equal access to spectacles. So how is this technology going to change equality? And when you put it that way, 
And we know, for example, that the vast majority of people in the US who suffer from sickle cell disease are African-Americans. And we know about the US healthcare system and its inequalities, then I think you can see there's, there's, there's something odd going on here. There's a mismatch in terms of, I mean, this is very exciting. On a global, if you wanted to be very utilitarian about it and say, well, you know, let's get the maximum benefit out of our skills, then I would humbly suggest that clean water, sewage systems, education for everybody all over the world, you could do that for the price of all this, which is only going to benefit a few thousand people or whatever, probably. So, I mean, I'm not a utilitarian, but I think a lot of the people who argue in this way often have a bit of utilitarianism in them. But sadly, bizarrely, they don't go for that. You know, clean water, sewage, not sexy, right. but saves lives. Well, to dig into that, I mean, in the United States, right, there is no clear line between what we might think of as medically necessary and what we might think of as cosmetic or, you know, enhancement, right? I mean... I think most dentists make most of their money now from straightening and whitening, right? And, you know, you go in there to the dentist and they say, you know, you need to be whiter. And I'm like, okay, now how's that going to affect my health? Well, it'll make you feel better. And it's like, you'll feel more confident and whatever. And it's like, well, what does that have to do with my, with medicine, right? I mean, that's where most of the money's going, right? Or at least a lot of the money. So why would we, why wouldn't we expect, you know, instead of going in to have your sickle cell fixed, where you're right, there might not be a lot of money. Why wouldn't it be like, I want to go in and, you know, be smarter, better looking and all the other stuff. And when you're thinking about, you know, if your <laughs> well, kids. Because by the time, it... wow, well, that's the difference. Okay. So let's think about, firstly, I mean, people have got to be clear that you might want to be smarter, but by the time you think that it's too late. Okay. Your brain's <laughs> right. done. Well, but, you know, you, you have, suppose, suppose you're we pregnant. Have no way. You have a kid. I mean, even, okay. even, it could happen at the level of pregnancy or even before, right? I mean, you got your IVF cells and they're oh. sitting in a dish and you're like, okay, well, I want my kid to be, you know, seven foot tall so he can get in the NBA, right? Right. Well, when your child's born, give them a lot of food. Okay. Go, go and live in Holland, <laughs> right? So the tallest nation on earth of a Dutch. Actually, it's, I think it's the Montenegrins. The Montenegrins are now have surpassed well, it. I mean, give your kid a lot of food. I mean, the same if you're pregnant, then there are some things you should take to avoid spina bifida, for example, various supplements, which are, none of these are genetic disease, but these are developmental effects. But these are all things you can do if you're wealthy, right? You can eat lots of good food. Now, the US is a, you're a very odd country because you have very little regulation. And for example, germ cell manipulation, germline manipulation, is illegal in many countries. There is no federal law against it in the US. So if you are a very rich person or a private medical institution, and these exist, you could do what you want. As long as you passed your local ethics, which is, I mean, if you're rich, you don't even have to do that. In the UK and in Europe and in many other countries, this will just be completely illegal. You are not allowed to do that. Similarly, in the US, couples, there are loads of companies which claim to be able to choose to enable you to select an embryo that will be smarter, taller, whatever. That is illegal in the UK. You're not allowed to do any embryo selection for sex, for example. You're only allowed to do it for particular genetic diseases. And there's a very, fairly restricted list of them. And my advice to anybody who's thinking of doing this in the US is to save their money. Just to give you one example, let's say you were a really big Nazi, right? And you really wanted to have your child having blue eyes. That was your, your aim in life. 
And you learn at school that there are blue genes and there are brown genes and brown genes are dominant over blue genes. So yeah, that must be dead easy. We can fix the blue gene, right? Make the blue gene come up and have a blue eyed baby, big Nazi. Except we now know that basically, I mean, that school stuff is never true. It's, it's, whatever they tell you at school, it's always lies. And that's a lie as well. It's kind of true, but it is technically possible for parents with any colour eye to have any colour eye baby. I mean, some are pretty unlikely. So if you have got both blue eyes, it's pretty likely you're going to have a blue eye baby, but it's not guaranteed. And there are over 60 genes involved in eye colour, just in eye colour. In intelligence, I mean, there are genetic factors involved, but you've got to remember what this involves. And it's generally men who talk about this, right? Because all this involves IVF. And anybody who's listening, who's been through IVF or who has a family member who has, know that this is no joke. I mean, for the man, you know, your business is done in a couple of seconds. It's all over with. But for the woman, she's got to have her set her eggs harvested, as they delightfully put it. And that involves a deeply unpleasant, series of hormone injections and all the rest of it and you're still going to end up only with a few dozen eggs if you want to increase the intelligence using genetics to have any perceptible effect you would need hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of eggs and even then you would move it by the same that your iq score for example by the same amount as you can move your iq score by having an espresso before you take the test so, I mean, the companies are doing this. That's their business. People want to waste their money. That's fine. But I mean, I think it is, it's a fool's errand and you're much better off caring for your child, giving them books to read, healthy food, outside activities, all the rest of that stuff, which is not rocket science. It's not sexy, but it actually works. Well, I don't think people choose things because they're effective. They choose them because they're bombarded with ads, right? And uh, wow. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, and it's my job to say, maybe think about this and think about the evidence. Well, you know, you also mentioned cloning, right? And Barbara Streisand famously cloned her dogs. And I know some people that have cloned polo ponies. You know, some rich people. I don't know anybody who's got a polo pony, <laughs> never mind cloned one. Well, I mean, this seems to be unregulated, right? I mean, presumably yeah. it's, it's well, if you tried to do this. Land humans. of the free, home of the brave, mate. You know, <laughs> that's, right? so that's what your country's built on. I mean, you couldn't do that here. I guess you probably could clone a horse. I'm not, I mean, the issue of horses is really interesting because people have studied, I mean, there's obviously there's a lot of money in horses, racing horses, and trying to work out why one particular lineage or one stud is going to produce, or do they produce faster horses? I mean, it's really tricky. And if people have got favorite animals and they want to have another favorite animal like that, great. But I bet it's not exactly the same. I mean... Identical twins who really are genetically identical aren't actually identical. They are pretty weird and eerie, but they're not identical. I mean, neither physically, their fingertips aren't the same because that's a random developmental thing. And their personalities aren't the same. My, my first postdoctoral research study was studying twins, getting them drunk. And I can tell you, I mean, they looked sometimes exactly the same, but there were always differences in their behavior. And yeah, they always, you know, you study these, read these things about, you know, twins reared apart and they both had a dog called Skip and they had a red poster on the wall, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, there are eerie coincidences, which we all like and focus on, but identical twins are not identical. I don't know about Barbara Streisand's dogs. My guess is 
they're not exactly the same as her lost dogs. And if you have a cat that's, say, a calico cat, it's not going to be the same because mm. there's a whole random, it'll look completely different. So you might be very disappointed. Well, I'd love to see the grant application. I want to get twins <laughs> drunk. <laughs> oh, hey, we didn't have to do it. We got a load of money from the Scotch Whiskey Association. I'm not joking. <laughs> that's crazy. Okay. Well, I mean, the one thing, uh, one of the three things you mentioned was gene drives. Now, unlike Monsanto, which wants its product to be sterile so that they can keep people coming back to, you know, purchase the next batch of seed, this is intentionally designed to, you know, be fertile, right? So the, the goal is to go forth and multiply, right? So you want to find a mosquito that is, you know, resistant to malaria and then have them go and, and kind of take over the population, so where are we there? I mean, one would think that the creatures that are out there in the environment are the ones that are best adapted to the environment. And so when we throw these new ones out into the population, that they would presumably, I mean, we look at feral pigs, right? Feral pigs are often, you know, pigs that escaped from domestication. And it doesn't take long before they kind of morph into wild pigs because those domestic genes don't really help them like out there in, in the wild. So how do the gene drives actually work? Well, the main thing they do is that they copy themselves. So the things that people are interested in is in particular sterility. So they're trying to get rid of mosquitoes. There are various talks about trying to make mosquitoes immune to malaria. But if you just think back to what I said about various resistant forms of insect, then you can just think, wait a minute, that's going to mean What's going to happen to the malaria parasite? It's actually going to mutate and a, it's going to become resistant. And that means it might resist our drugs as well. So that could be a very bad thing. But there are some people who are trying to think of fancy ways of doing this. Because, of course, the mosquito doesn't hurt us. It's the parasite that it's got within it. So the idea that people have is to basically, at the moment, when you hear about these releases of mosquito in Florida, for example, people are releasing sterile males. Now, males don't bite. It's only the females that bite. And the sterile male will mate with a female. And that means you don't get any babies. So the population will collapse. And that may mean that you can then, if you've got a disease transmitting area, that you can then, for example, cure all the humans of malaria, give them drugs or whatever. So when the mosquitoes return, they bite people. There's no malaria that they can then transmit. So that's what we do at the moment, right? We create, using x-rays or chemicals, sterile mosquitoes and we release vast numbers of them. And this works. This is work. There's something called the screw worm, which was a terrible farm pest in the southwest of America. And it was eliminated by releasing loads and loads of these flies, sterile, you know, bazillions of sterile flies, which mated with the female, the males mated with the females, and the population disappeared. So it can work. We can remove pests that way. But that was an invasive pest. It wasn't something that naturally lived in the US environment. The difference is that if you can do this in a wild population mosquitoes and the gene drive will copy itself every generation. So instead of, if you've got two genes, everybody's got two copies of each gene, yeah, including mosquitoes. So if you've made a super mosquito that is weird in some way or resists malaria, then you give half of your genes to each of your offspring, yeah, just like your mum and dad did. So that means your offspring have now only got one copy of your gene. But what a gene drive does is it now copies itself over to the other chromosomes. So your offspring have two copies and their offspring and their offspring and their offspring. So it basically grows exponentially. The people who first created one of these things, they've been theorized before and these 
people created it without knowing about all the arguments there'd been for about 15 years about whether this was a good idea. They called it a, a genetic chain reaction. And that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's, an, it's a genetic bomb. So in, in the laboratory, this works very well. And in large cages, you can disappear. A whole population of mosquitoes said they're primarily working on sterility. I'm not going to explain. Yeah, they transmit sterility. It sounds kind of incomprehensible, but it, trust me, it works. And you can get rid of the whole population of mosquitoes in a big cage within a few generations. So this would work. The question is, then what happens? What happens to the environment you've altered? Because although no one, no species simply lives on a particular mosquito, in a way it's worse because there are lots and lots of species which all eat mosquitoes or their little wriggling babies in the water. And if even some of those species go a little bit hungry, then, you know, these things, ecology is full of cascades and unintended mm. consequences. And furthermore, you know, you can say, well, look, 600,000 people every year die of malaria. Okay. The vast majority of them are children under five. And if I'm a parent in an African village where there is such high death rates, I'm going to take this, right? You know, because you don't want your children to die. I get that. And I also think they should have a right of veto if they don't want it for whatever reason. But should they have the right to decide for the region, the country, the continent, the planet? Because mosquitoes move about. You know, Zika virus, which ended up causing such problems in Brazil, originated in Africa, where it is not too much of a problem. And the mosquitoes aren't a problem. But the mosquitoes and the virus went across the Atlantic on boats, you know, the larvae in pails of water on a boat and then invaded South America, both the virus and the mosquito changed. And now we've got a big problem with this very unpleasant disease. So you could have unintended ecological consequences. We could have changes you know, around the planet. And we don't know enough about ecology to be able to say, okay, this is great. But we've got those people dying. Now, perhaps there's a solution because you may know that the WHO has just approved a new vaccine for malaria, which is fantastic news. I mean, people have been banging away at this for decades. I mean, this is for children and this can save lives and we will see a massive reduction in the death rate if there is good uptake. The other thing that we can do is to alter the mosquitoes, but not genetically. So many insects and people have been fascinated by, about this for about 30 years. Many insects have bacteria or other parasites in them that just live in them. And this means that when they mate with other members of their species or slightly different members of their species, the offspring are sterile. And there have been a number of trials of this, in not on malaria causing mosquitoes, but in other versions where you infect the mosquito with the bacterium. It's quite okay. It doesn't know. It flies about. It bites everybody. But when it mates, it, doesn't produ it produces for a sterile offspring. So you've done the same thing of reducing the population size. Not eliminating it completely, which is what a gene drive would technically do, but substantially depressing it. But again, maybe the, uh, well, certainly the plasmodium, as it's called, the malaria parasite is going to fight back. So again, we've got this problem of creating an arms race. Do we want to do that? I mean, these are really big questions. I'm not clever enough to work out the answer. We need international, all these things. We need international regulation of this. And this applies to AI as well, I think, you know. And the problem is we live in a world in which, although there are examples of regulatory bodies, civil aviation authority, right? I mean, when you get on a plane you know it's going to be okay because there is the International Civil Aviation 
organization, which was set up after the Second World War, which regulates. You don't have to sign up to it. You could have your own airline, your own airport, which didn't part sign up to this. But who would you'd be crazy to get on an airplane that didn't have that kind of backing? The same with the International Atomic Energy Agency. You know, that regulates international atomic energy. These are both very dangerous technologies. And yet, with good regulation, they are quite safe. And I think those are the models we need to be thinking about for all these areas of having some kind of international body which people can sign up to. It doesn't have to be, you know, imposed from on the top. It should be all be a big, be agreeing to it and all the rest of it. And that's where it gets really hard because the science and the ethics is hard enough, right? But now we're talking politics because, as you know, the US, for example, hasn't signed up to the International Criminal mm -hmm. Court and many other countries. Russia hasn't either. Mm -hmm. So there's no appetite for international regulation on a global scale. There was after the Second World War because, duh, it had been horrible and everybody thought we better make sure this doesn't happen again. So, I mean, my, the end point of my book is, well, we're going to have to think about this very hard. And that's one reason why I care quite a bit about it, because it, it's not going to move without people caring and then making politicians care, because politicians aren't going to bother about this unless there's some kind of recognition, like with AI, that this could go wrong. Well, just to dig into that analogy with AI, right? When people talk about all the things that can go wrong with AI, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of like bias, right? People say, oh, look at all the bias in AI, right? Well, the proper comparison is not with perfection, but with whatever it is that the AI would be replacing, right? Which is the human algorithm, which, you know, has plenty of bias, right? So it, the question is, you know, is it is there less bias, right? In the, in the algorithm than the human. And so, you know, everything that is said about, Genetic engineering could also be said about, you know, selective breeding, let's say, right? I mean, there's unintended consequences, right? And so why wouldn't we say, instead of doing some selective breeding where we're targeting one change and we might get like a gazillion other changes sort of accidentally, we can go in and like precision snip, right, with CRISPR and just make sure that we get the little thing that we want. Like, just like in AI, we can just say, oh, let's delete the column on race. Let's delete the column on gender, which you can't do in the human brain when you're making decisions, right? So isn't this, I mean, you quote Stuart Brand, and I think this was a great way to end the book. And he said, let's not talk about not being gods. Like we are gods. Let's just figure out how to, you know, be good at it. Right. So it isn't like being really precise about it. Doesn't this enable us to avoid some of the unintended consequences in ways that we couldn't before? Well, the first thing is to see whether we are gods, right? Because there's a lot of rhetoric. And I mean, the US title is not my title. I know it goes <laughs> down very well over there, right? But that's not what I call the book. I call the book The Genetic Age, Our Perilous Quest to Edit Life. And you, the US title is much more dramatic and it also includes the word moral, which I don't feel very comfortable with. Mm -hmm. But I think the first thing is, okay, what about the rhetoric, right? So gods, the precision you've just been talking about. CRISPR, it's a pair of scissors. It's really precise. It just changed that. Well, that depends. It turns out to be unbelievably complicated. And for example, in primate embryos, and this includes humans, if you use CRISPR, when you're manipulating an embryo, then it's not a pair of scissors. It's like a chainsaw run amok. Mm. You can lose whole chromosomes. And this has become, people who've come aware of this over the last two, two, three years. You call this genetic butchery. Absolutely. I mean, it may be possible to do it safely, okay? And then we've got to talk about the ethical issues. But at the moment, this is incredibly unsafe. 
in particular in primates and in humans. I mean, when I talk to this to my students about this, they go, but wait a minute. I mean, we had a lecture last week and the guy said he'd just been doing it on his mice and it was all going great. I said, yeah, but if a mouse dies in the lab, nobody cares, right? You can just get another mouse and you carry on doing it until it works. I don't want this done to my genes. I want, you know, and then having cells put into my body, unless I'm absolutely certain it's fine. And I certainly don't ever want it happening to any offspring of me or anybody else. And at the moment, this is incredibly dangerous. So we're nowhere near being gods. On the other hand, your point about selective breeding is absolutely right. And I think, for example, with plants in particular, then there is the possibility that although plants really don't like, doesn't CRISPR is really hard to get working in plants. I mean, there's all sorts of, te- you know, behind the myths, behind the, the one phrase, you know, buzzword, which gets all the tech bros excited, there is amazingly hard biology and plants don't like it very much having their cells crispered. And you've got to understand really exactly where and when you can do this and how, and that will change from species to species. It's infuriating. But in principle, let's forget all the problems. In principle, then yes, changing letters of DNA very precisely should enable the development, say, of new plants that can resist desiccation, you know, resist drought or something like that, or respond better to climate change. And it's far more precise than the current procedure which we have, which is, I mean, we don't even do selective breeding anymore. Basically, you, you create bazillions of mutant plants, you then put them in the situation using x-rays or a mutagen, you put them all in a field and you see which ones grow. I mean, when it's not in a field, it's in a lab greenhouse. And then you select them and you then you've got to breed from them and that takes forever. So yes, this could be If the public can accept this, and I'm not sure whether they will or they won't. I mean, I think in general they should do if it's safe, if nothing else has been altered in the plant genome and it's simply the genetic information that's been altered, then this could be remarkably useful. Well, Matthew, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me. The new book is called, well, okay, in the US, (laughs) it's called As Gods. And in the UK, it's got a much more sober title the genetic age flipped. you can't say the genetic age yeah and it's great to talk i mean yeah you have to get me back to talk about all the other stuff yeah of course we didn't even touch this book which was the reason why i reached out to you (laughs) which is the idea of the brain and also my favorite sense of course smell and i got to figure out like how on earth you also have a completely alternative career and personality as a historian of world war ii and you know talk about unsiloed that's a I had not read those books, but I ordered them all. And so I'm going to go and maybe read them on vacation whenever I have one of those. Well, the second one is on the liberation of Paris. And my advice to you is to go to Paris in August and walk around and see what was happening in 1944. I'll do that. Thanks so much. There you go. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.